how do we achieve technological democracies in an era of tech monopolies? I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Corey Doctorow, writer, journalist, blogger, and activist, and author of the new book, Radicalized. Welcome, Corey. Thank you. It's nice to be back on. It's, you're always welcome here because you always have something interesting to say. And so for, but for the tiny few who may not know who you are yet, give us a quick summary of your accomplishments and misadventures. Sure. I'm, I'm a science fiction novelist. I've written um, a lot of books. You can see a stack of them back there. Uh, and I'm also an activist. Uh, I'm a special consultant with a nonprofit called the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I worked for them off and on for more than a decade. I used to be their European director. Um, I'm also kind of a pretend academic. I have these honorary appointments. I'm a, a visiting professor of computer science at Open University, from whom I hold an honorary computer science doctorate, uh, visiting professor of practice of library science at UNC in North Carolina, and uh, a research affiliate at the MIT Media Lab. And I'm one of the owners of a website called Boing Boing. I'm a journalist, and I, I write that website every day. Uh, and um, it's culture and tech and, and society and politics sums you up per personally very well. So I want to narrow down on something that just happened. You spoke at the Republican 19 NetsFest conference in Berlin, and the mm -hmm. topic was it's monopolies, not surveillance. The bulk of your presentation was aimed at some of the biggest names in tech, Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon. Why did you pick these four? Well, and not just that, Microsoft too. You know, I. I so I remember a time when the internet wasn't just five giant websites filled with screenshots from the other four. And uh, that was a, a very exciting time. It was a time in which we were promised a kind of technological democracy where um, anyone could participate, not just in the discussions online, but in the way that those discussions were held. Anyone could make tools, host a mail server, uh, operate their own independent blog, and so on. And what's increasingly happened is that all of our tech has become concentrated into a very small number of hands. Uh, and that's happened at the same time that all of our other industries have become equally concentrated. So, you know, just a few automakers left standing and you know, very famously, we're, we're down to one professional wrestling league from the 30 some that were around 40 years ago. Um, and, and this has all kinds of toxic effects. If you're a wrestler, the fact that there's only one place to sell your labor means that now you get classed as a, um, a contractor and not an employee and you don't get health care and that's why they're all dropping dead in their 40s and 50s. Um, but if, if you're a tech you know, user or entrepreneur or someone who cares about uh, any of the places where tech touches our lives, about human rights and, and other equities, then the concentration in the industry means that you have individuals who make choices that ripple out for billions of people. And those individuals, some of them are, are very good and well-motivated and some of them I think of as being less good and less well-motivated. But nobody in the history of the human race was qualified to make decisions about the speech and conduct of billions of people unilaterally all on their own. And increasingly, the way that we're addressing the problems that arise from this, whether that's uh, white terrorists live streaming atrocities from Christchurch, New Zealand, or copyright infringement, or human trafficking, and, um, or, or, or uh, the pornographic images of children, or uh, even copyright infringement, the way that we're dealing with this is by asking these giant platforms to take on state-like duties, to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to build automated filters. And these filters, they, they, they end up catching a lot of dolphins in the tuna net. 
You know, they, they, they uh, even if they work with say 99% accuracy, when you're handling billions of pieces of content today, 1% inaccuracy means millions and millions of, of people's acts of speech being unfairly blocked. And none of the platforms have or ever will have the kind of staffing that they need to handle the appeals process for all of that content. And none of them has a filter that's even remotely close to 99% accurate. Uh, that, that would be a, a wonderful kind of mystical experience to build a, a, a filter that could identify copyright infringement or harassment or terrorism with 99% accuracy. And, and as we imbue these platforms with these state-like duties, we foreclose on the possibility of them ever facing a challenge. Because, you know, Facebook got to be Facebook through a lot of different kinds of shenanigans. Um, they had some good ideas. They also had a lot of money. They also had access to some legal tactics. But what they didn't have was hundreds of millions of dollars to build filters that they now have today, right, that they're now sitting on. And no competitor of Facebook, no matter how clever they are, no matter how many lucky breaks they get, no competitor of Facebook is going to have hundreds of millions of dollars to build and execute filters. And so if you can only enter the marketplace with those hundreds of millions in hand, none of them will enter the marketplace. And this means that we are moving from this democratic possibility to a kind of constitutional monarchy, right? That's where the king gets to rule forever, but he has to, you know, kind of uh, put himself in gilded chains that are held by an aristocracy a kind of parliament of regulators, mostly drawn from the executive ranks of the industry itself, and uh, who will ask him to uh, exercise a kind of noblesse oblige in his total dominance of our world. And, you know, since the internet is like not a video on demand system or pornography distribution system or a jihadi recruiting tool, since it's, you know, the nervous system of our species, of our planet and of our century, then giving these companies eternal dominance means giving them dominance over our social lives, our family lives, our romantic lives, our education, our employment, our political and civic engagement, um, our access to tools and ideas and communities. And that is an awesome responsibility that we should not be giving up to a handful of giant companies, that we should be jealously guarding as the, as the rightful realm of democracy and democratic control. You made a compelling case that governments and regulators have more often than not made a mess of internet regulation and copyright laws. Is more regulation the wrong answer? No, I think good regulation is the right answer and bad regulation is the wrong answer. These are uncontroversial ideas. Nobody's in favor of bad regulation. But I, I think that um, we can look at our regulatory outcomes, not just in tech, but in a lot of domains, right? And, you know, think about 10 years ago, the way that we responded to the, the uh, introduction of supposedly safe opioids uh, and, and how asleep at the switch our regulators were, how willing to take at face value the statements of the pharmaceutical industry and companies like Purdue Pharma about the safety of their products. Or, or think about the way that we're managing the environmental crisis or any number of other areas where we've had all of this bad policy. I think the reason that we're getting bad policy in all these domains is the same, which is that when an industry is really concentrated, uh, it can stop competing and start cooperating, right? I, I don't know if you remember that, that infamous photo of all of the leaders of all the tech companies meeting with Trump and Trump Tower after the inauguration. And there were two remarkable things about it. One was that, you know, you had all these people you, who, who wield all this power over our lives all, all sitting around with Trump. But the other amazing thing is that they all fit around one table, 
right? That, that once everybody fits around one table, it's a lot easier to come up with a kind of collaborative plan to make sure that everybody gets a, a fair share of uh, the industry and nobody is competing too strongly with anyone else and to make sure that nobody's defecting. We've seen little bits and pieces of that over the years. You know, uh, you might remember there was this um, scandal that all the tech companies had come up with no poaching arrangements where they wouldn't hire each other's senior staff as a way to suppress wages among senior tech staff who are otherwise in the seller's market for their labor. So once an industry is really concentrated, it can lobby effectively, it can conspire effectively, um, and it has so much money in the form of surplus capital generated from its monopolies, from, from what economists call monopoly rents, that it can really have this outsized impact on policy outcomes. It can really dictate what policy is going to look like to the regulators who are supposed to be conducting these evidence-based inquiries into what our rules should be. And so we don't get good policy not because good policy is impossible. We get bad policy because good policy would gore the ox of someone who's so rich that their ox are off limits to being gored. Isn't that what's happening in China with AI industry cooperating with government? And shouldn't we be cooperating the same way for security and commerce reasons? Well, I, I think that, you know, when you look at what China is hoping to preserve the security of, it's, it's the security of an otherwise unstable system. The reason China's system is unstable is because it's corrupt, right? China has become as unequal as the West. It, it is on track to surpass the inequality of the West. It's done so partly by creating a lot of general prosperity. There's been a lot of wealth creation in China, but also by amassing a huge amount of policy debt, environmental debt, uh, political debt, uh, that, whose interest is just mounting, right? You have these... Um, massive uh, corrupt markets in property speculation that has left empty cities all around the, the, the country. Um, you have uh, massive amounts of pollution. You have a demographic crisis brought on by generations of the one-child family that has um, uh, created a, 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 a huge shortage of young working-aged people relative to the massive surplus of older people who are out of work who rely on those younger working-aged people to directly and indirectly support them to the point where, where there is just, um, you know, it's inconceivable that, that China is going to be able to go on in this way. They're going to have to find some way to massively increase productivity. And then on top of that, there's just, there's just you know, a huge amount of corruption. There's just people who have amassed vast fortunes by breaking the rules and getting away with it because they're rich and powerful. And that's an unstable situation, right? When, when people are, are uh, really rich, when a small number of people are really rich at the expense of everyone else who's really poor, and when those really poor people's lives are going to get steadily worse because of environmental problems, because of uh, corrupt uh, practices, you know, you may remember there were schools falling down in China a few years ago because inspectors were taking bribes from corrupt contractors who were building schools that just crushed the children in them. You know, this creates massive political unrest. And, and that massive political unrest can be addressed in two ways, right? One is the way that China is going through now. They put a million people in, in uh, the... Um, uh, Asian re or the, the you know the the region of China closest to uh, the Caucasus, where you have these Turkic populations, Turkic Muslim populations like Uyghurs, they put a million of them in concentration camps, and they've subjected the rest of them to a fine-grained control where their biometrics are on file, their genetic information, um, their phones mandatorily have apps that record them, record everywhere they go, analyzes them, and and coughs up recommendations about who to arrest and torture. 
Um, and, and that's one way of doing it, right? It's ramping up the guard labor so that um, as people's uh, uh, unrest grows and as they become more ready to take drastic measures that might uh, make things really unpleasant for the rich and powerful, um, you can catch them you know, before, they, before they rise up. The other way to do it is to have a more equitable society, right? To pay off the policy debts, right? So you can either build fences or hospitals. You can either redistribute or you can hire guards to stand around your fortune. And um, the Chinese method has been to increase the wealth of the super rich while increasing the spend on guard labor, while increasing the R&D on technology in the hopes that the guard labor spend can go farther because the amount of money you need to spend on guard labor as societies become more unequal and as this policy debt mounts, it's not linear, it's exponential, right? That, that the uh, amount of unpleasantness that arises when people are a little hungry doubles and quadruples and octuples once they start to starve. And um, the only way that China's gonna be able to meet that crisis without becoming a more equal, less corrupt place is by ramping up AI to the point where each AI is doing the job of a thousand policemen, a thousand torturers, a thousand guards. And I don't even know if they're going to be able to do that, but I think even if they could, for reasons that to me seem pretty obvious, they shouldn't, and we shouldn't. Back to the U.S., because we're not China. Mm -hmm. Why can't the solution be that we just walk away from Facebook or, and buy from retailers besides Amazon. And for the people who love Apple products, what's wrong with them deciding that the value they receive outweighs the price they pay? So I think that we've seen that people are, are unable to avail themselves of the usual market-based uh, remedies for bad conduct from firms. You know. Um, Facebook uh, represents, in part, a triumph of better services over competitors like MySpace. Uh, and Facebook, in fact, for 10 years, advertised that you should use Facebook instead of MySpace or Orchid or the other uh, dominant networks at the time that Facebook emerged, because Facebook would respect your privacy, right? They, they wouldn't allow people to mine your data. In fact, the, they had a walled garden that stopped Google from scraping Facebook and, and uh, analyzing Facebook users' data. Uh, and as the competition fell away, Facebook um, started to break those privacy promises. But users found themselves unable to go to a Facebook competitor to express their disappointment in Facebook's lack of privacy and Facebook's broken promises. So last year, for example, we had, um, uh, 15 million people in America aged 13 to 34 who left Facebook. Uh, and they left Facebook in large part, I think, because they didn't like the way Facebook was handling their data. But they ended up on Instagram, which is a Facebook company. Now, uh, before the PC came along, before Ronald Reagan became president, before 1980 or so, Facebook would never have been allowed to buy Instagram. The dominant form of antitrust enforcement prior to the Reagan era, which is also the era of the first PCs, which is the era of the tech revolution. Before that, companies weren't allowed to grow by, by uh, doing what's called a merger to monopoly. That's when two big competitors merge to take control of the market. They also weren't allowed to grow by buying up the nascent competitors that might someday grow to uh, challenge them to become their rivals the way Facebook grew to become MySpace's rival. 
Um, and they certainly weren't allowed to do the kind of vertical integration that we see now, where Facebook is the company that spies on you, but it's also the company that chooses what ads are, are sent to you based on the surveillance, right? Where they're doing both parts of the, of the, of the transaction. You know, rail companies weren't allowed to be freight companies. You could either ship freight or you could own the rails that the freight was shipped on, but you couldn't be both because the other shippers, the other freight companies would be at a disadvantage if they were competing with a freighter that owned the rails. And, and so we don't really have the kind of traditional remedies that we used to have. And it's worth looking at the sole Facebook competitor that just does social as a way of understanding just how much the lack of competition has distorted our market. So Facebook really has only one major social media competitor, company that just does social media, it's Snap. And, and Snap's promise is, we're more or less like Facebook, but because all of your images disappear and your messages disappear after a couple of days, we're a lot more private than Facebook. And, and people really like Snap. I mean, Snap uh, has, has struggled against all the odds to continue to have millions and millions of users. So how did Facebook respond to Snap? Well, first of all, they had a lot of warning that Snap was coming because another company that Facebook had bought that they never would have been allowed to buy 40 years ago is called Onavo. And Onavo, it was originally billed as a battery monitor that you can install on your phone. And what it actually did was gather huge amounts of fine-grained data on your usage of your phone while monitoring your data, your, your battery. It monitored everything, every tap, every app, how you use them. So Facebook could see through this surveillance tool that it had users who were leaving Facebook for Snap. So that's what prompted them to buy Instagram. But after they bought Instagram, they continued to monitor Snap users with Onavo to figure out how they were using Snap so that they could tweak the features of Instagram. And so what this means is that Snap is, is swimming upstream here. Snap is at an unfair advantage. And it's just one of the many advantages that Facebook has secured for itself that it would have struggled to overcome if, if MySpace had been able to avail themselves of it. So another one would be that um, Facebook, uh, when it launched, it had this huge structural problem, which is that every potential Facebook user was actually a MySpace user at that point. And if you left MySpace, all your friends would still be there. And so Facebook is only useful in as much as you can talk to your friends on it. And so Facebook made a tool that would pretend to be you and log into MySpace and take all the waiting messages and bring them to Facebook and let you to reply to them there. And then it would send them back to MySpace, pretending to be you again, and end, uh, end each message with a little footer that said, I sent this from Facebook. Why are you still using MySpace? And then a competitor of Facebook, a company called Power Ventures, tried to do to Facebook what Facebook had done to MySpace. They made a tool that would log into Facebook and pretend to be you, and log into LinkedIn, and logged into every other social telephone you had to answer, and it would aggregate all of the waiting messages for you in one dashboard, and you could reply to them in that one place. Now, Facebook, by that point, had a lot of extra money. So they paid law professors to write law review articles, and they hired some really cracked lawyers, and they marshaled this uh, vast pool of, of amicus briefs. To, to sue Power Ventures under a radical new theory of an old Ronald Reagan era law called the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, to say that their terms of service that forbade this kind of activity were enforceable against them, even though MySpace's terms of service that forbade this activity were not enforceable against Facebook. And they killed Power Ventures. And so Snap, under a pre Power Ventures theory, could not only have a better privacy tool than Facebook that users clearly want, but they could also allow users in a private way 
to talk to their Facebook friends, to not have to choose between Snap and Facebook, to have one foot in Facebook and one foot in Snap, and still be able to communicate with their old friends without letting Facebook mine all their data. So we don't really have that kind of competitive market. The same is true with Apple, right? Apple users want to be able to install apps from third parties. That's why they're suing Apple. The Supreme Court just ruled that they could continue to sue Apple, right? Users of Apple products don't sue Apple because they're happy with an app store that doesn't let them buy from third parties. In the same way that all of those Apple users who take their devices to third-party repair centers to get them fixed are not doing so because they're happy with the service Apple offers. Um, and yet, Apple has spent millions killing every right-to-repair proposal that has been made at the state level and in Canada recently in Ontario, and they're spending really big to fight federal right-to-repair legislation and European right-to-repair legislation. The only right-to-repair legislation that's actually gotten into law was a direct ballot referendum in Massachusetts, where they, it didn't matter how much Apple was spending because it wasn't in the politicians' hands. It was in the hands of Apple users who overwhelmingly turned out at the polls to vote for the right to choose where they got their devices fixed. And so I think that we don't see a world in which people are happy to give their data to Facebook or to be locked into Apple's platform. We see a world in which they accept the benefits of those, but they expect that markets should allow them to discipline those firms when those benefits come with costs that they deem to be too high to bear. You concluded by saying that tech is rotten because everything is rotten. But Sure. Isn't that just another way of saying that humans are imperfect and everything humans create has imperfection in its DNA? You're right that we are imperfect, but um, we have had different mechanisms for correcting for those imperfections at different times. And we underwent a huge change in the mechanism that we employed about 40 years ago. So a way of, of, of framing this might be to think about um, the, the prehistory of science. So science is a way to correct for human imperfections, right? And before we had science, we had a thing that looked a lot like science called alchemy. And alchemists did more or less what scientists do, right? You would see two things in the universe and you go, I bet this is causing that, right? Then you try to design an experiment to see whether this causes that. And you would run the experiment and then you would use the knowledge you gained from that to build up a better, more detailed picture of how the world works that would allow you to, to uh, hypothesize more causal relationships and do more experiments. The difference between alchemy and science was what happened after the experiment was over. Because when a scientist is done with their experiment, they have to let people who disagree with them, the people who wish them worst in the world, they have to let them examine their findings, it's called adversarial peer review. And we assume that if your dire enemies who want nothing more than to see you fail can't make a case that your conclusions are invalid, that they're probably pretty good. Whereas alchemists, they didn't have to expose anyone to their findings. And if they did, it tended to be people like their apprentices, people who didn't get to tell them that they were full of BS. And this is how alchemists discovered for themselves in the hardest way possible that you really shouldn't drink mercury, right? And for 500 years, alchemy stalled out. You know, we call that period the Dark Ages, right? When alchemists started to expose the outcomes of their truth-seeking exercises to scrutiny from adversaries, we call that moment the Enlightenment. Now, we built our regulatory process in the free world on this Enlightenment principle, the idea that you would have regulators who stood apart from industry, who are subject to stringent um, uh, conflict of interest rules, 
and who would undertake neutral truth-seeking exercises to gather our best evidence, to evaluate that evidence in light of um, uh, empirical processes, and to produce well-reasoned evidence-based policies that we would hold industry to, and that the regulators would then be beholden to lawmakers who themselves would be beholden to voters. But something changed over the last 40 years, and what changed is that we have instituted a set of policies that make rich people a lot richer. And what that's done is it's compromised our politicians, right? We see the politicians are increasingly beholden to a small number of rich people and that they do their bidding instead of the pluralistic bidding. And then the regulators themselves are also uh, beholden to industry because when industry is concentrated, it does the bidding of, uh, it can coordinate uh, its um, actions to make sure that its bidding is done. And the reason industry became concentrated is because of rules made by politicians that make it easier for, for uh, industry to become concentrated, right? We dismantled antitrust. And that has the effect of making a small number of people much richer. And when those people are much richer, their policy uh, preferences take on the weight of law. And so, you know, a good example of this pretty recently that I talked about in that talk in Berlin is, is what just happened in West Virginia. Uh, West Virginia, we think of it as coal country, but actually West Virginia's top industry is chemical processing. And the largest company in that industry is Dow Chemicals. Dow got big by merging with its competitors, doing things that would have been illegal 40 years ago. And now it's huge, massive. And one of the things that Dow would really like is uh, for there to be a relaxation on national environmental standards for how much poison from chemical processing can be put into drinking water. Right? And so there is a process underway in West Virginia at the state level to consider raising the threshold uh, for toxic waste in public drinking water. And Dow filed comments through its industry representative, the body that it, that it works through, the, the lobbying group, saying that West Virginians can tolerate a higher level of poison in their drinking water than the national average, because the national average is based on the national average of BMI. And West Virginians are fatter than people in the rest of America. And so they can absorb more poison before they get sick, right? Now, this is the kind of thing that you write if you are engaged in a, a, a corrupt evidence-seeking process where the person in charge of it has said, look, I have a box here, and you have to write a reason for me to do your bidding in it. It doesn't matter what you put in the box. Just put anything you think of in the box, and we'll go ahead and do what you, what you want, right? The fact that Dow wrote that in the box tells you exactly how convinced they are that their political will will become policy in West Virginia, that they can just dominate the process and that they don't even have to pretend to have facts on their side anymore. And so people are imperfect, but people at different times have come up with different ways of correcting for the imperfection. And I think as a kind of meta-analysis, if we wanna look at different eras in our history, you can look at the 30 to 40 years after the end of World War II when America and the world were more equal than they had been at any time in history, because we blew up so much of our global wealth during World War II that um, the rich had a lot less, right? Because they had a lot more to begin with, right? If the rich own 90% of the world's wealth and you destroy 90% of the world's wealth, it follows that most of it will come from the rich. And so the rich were a lot poorer than they had been in living memory. And then we got 30 years of unparalleled prosperity. And that 30 years of unparalleled prosperity was attended by 30 years of evidence-based policymaking, not always 
clearly there are a lot of African Americans who suffered under evidence-based, uh, non-evidence-based policymaking, things like redlining and Jim Crow rules, but much more evidence-based than they had been in the, in the history of America. And that unparalleled growth that happened everywhere in which the rich lost their shirts ended when the wealth of the richest 10% reaccumulated to the point where they started calling the shots, where you started seeing the election of figures like Margaret Thatcher in England, Brian Mulroney in Canada, where I'm from, Helmut Kohl in Germany, Ronald Reagan in America, and so on. Corey Doctorow, writer, journalist, blogger, and activist fighting for our rights. And oh, author of the book, Radicalized. I've got a copy right on my set. If somebody wants to get a copy of that for themselves, maybe, or find more of your work, Corey, how can they do that? Well, so it's sold wherever books are sold. Um, I understand that there's a fellow in Washington State who's started an online bookstore that uh, called um, Amazon that you can visit, uh, but also your local independent bookseller. It's from Macmillan. Uh, Tor books, uh, their science fiction input, the largest one in the world. You can get the ebooks everywhere and they're all DRM free. Uh, every Tor book is DRM free, which means that you can use it on any platform, no matter where you buy it. And you can buy them from me, uh, craphound.com, crap like poop, hound like dog.com. I'm the retailer for my publishers. So if you buy it from me, I get the share that Jeff Bezos would normally trouser. I take the rest and I send it to my publisher. They take the royalty that they normally pay to the author and send it back to me. Perfect. Thanks again, Corey. Thank and if you. you guys, absolutely. If you guys want to find more of my interviews, you can do that right here or go to tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.